1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you
0: listen.
1: If you want to use the Pew Bible, our passage that we're going to read is found on page 213, Judges chapter 13. We enter into the, one of the most famous stories, obviously, in the whole Old Testament, that of Samson. In some ways, one of the weirdest stories as well. Um, We're just going to deal with this first uh, chapter, which has to do with uh, the birth of Samson, primarily the announcement of this birth, and then the birth is how it ends, the great object of the Announcement. <clears throat> the people of Israel did again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and if not born children but you shall conceive and bear a son therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold you shall conceive and bear a son uh, some think and I'd lean this way that actually verse 5 it, it means you have become pregnant already you, you've already conceived and you will bear a son So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she sat in the field But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "'Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you.' The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, "'If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord.' For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord." And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. That's related to the word wonderful above. And Manoah and his wife were watching And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray you would bless our understanding of this passage. Bless us, Lord, that we would live out uh, the truths of this word, that we would live in keeping with the revelation of your glory in this passage, Lord, that it would transform us in Christ. And enable us to believe you and to rest in you and to expect great things from you, Lord, as we see your greatness as revealed in this passage. Bless us, Lord, for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. We're going to jump right in. Uh, Two basic points this morning. Isn't that good? Two instead of three. Has to be shorter, right? Um, But we're going to look first at God's initiative in bringing about this gracious birth, and then God's work, God's initiative, and then God's work. And if you keep the text before you, it can be very helpful. You'll notice in this first verse that they were given into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, 40 is a regular number of completeness and fullness in Scripture, Uh, It rained 40 days and 40 nights, uh, the flood. Uh, The flood lasted for 40 days. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. But most significantly, three times before, after the judgeship of Othniel and that of Barak Deborah and that of Gideon, it says the land had rest for 40 years. But now you can see how things have turned so badly, not not rest for 40 years, under oppression for 40 years. That's the point. That's the the startling significance of this, that for 40 years they've had this bondage. This is to point to the severity of their bondage, the completeness of this bondage, the utter destitution and hopelessness. There is no possibility of change. That's what 40 years is telling us. There is no way out. And up to now, every time the bondage of Israel is, has been described, it's followed by, as you know, their cry to be released out of bondage. But there is no cry here. Forty years of bondage, no cry to be released from this bondage. You'd expect it here of all places, the most severe, terrible, yet no cry at all. And this indicates, on the one hand, their hopelessness, their low morale, and the complete dominance of the Philistines, the full-blown despair. What's even the use of crying out? That's the sense of this passage. Israel's like a man who's been injured so badly, he can't even cry out for help. But on the other hand, this despair is obviously coupled with unbelief. They had given themselves, as we read earlier in chapter 10, to the God of the Philistines and many other gods. And so Yahweh was just a word to them. Their hearts had been locked out, locked with other gods for so many years they didn't even cry out to God anymore. He's not to them the living, almighty God that they loved and honored and trusted. This is their spiritual condition. And when you get to verse 2, it almost seems to change the subject. Like, what does this guy from Zora have to do with anything? And so there is this guy in Zora, you know. But you you know that... The way it's described, it kind of pulls you into it. Well, he must have something to do with this because he's part of this story. Must have something to do with their predicament. And this following narrative uh, that describes the angel's appearance and finally the birth of Samson takes the place of what was the normal uh, the normal order in chapters two and three, where after there's affliction and the cry, it says, God raised a deliverer. This is the God raised a deliverer part, okay? So we've got the affliction, no cry, and then this lengthy, unique uh, statement of how God raises a deliverer. And what is significant here. And this is our first point, is God's incredible, gracious initiative. Entering into this situation. Israel is in her sin, serving under other gods, under the oppression of the Philistines, won't even cry out to him, and yet God appears to this nameless, childless woman to announce his salvation. You think, what context? What did he see to do this? Why would you act in this way? For these people won't even cry out or notice you. Utterly destitute. Why would you care anything about these people? And yet he, on his own initiative, in a bleak and black situation, announces salvation. you see, her situation of barrenness is a mirror of the bleakness of Israel itself. She's disgraced and powerless, facing extinction with no no offspring. And this was Israel's situation, disgraced and powerless and facing extinction. And so in God's actions for her, he's acting for all of Israel in this awesome, gracious initiative. And as Barry Webb says, this child then is a gift. This announcement of the angel is a creative, transforming word. This is hope in the midst of despair. A child will be born to you. A child will be born to you that will save Israel or begin to save Israel, as he says here. Even Manoah's wife must keep the Nazarite vow herself to indicate that this child belongs to God from conception, dedicated from conception. This is God's special creation from start to finish. He owns this child and he's going to direct this child, even from conception, to do his thing for Israel. This is his ball game. Even when Manoah tries to find out more information about what to do for this child, how to get it ready, what is its mission, the angel doesn't tell him anything, but just goes back to, well, again, keep the Nazarite vow. That's basically all you have to do. It's as though God's going to handle this. God's going to prepare this child. God's going to raise him up. God's going to use him. He's in God's hands, Manoah, not yours. But all of that is to show this is God's initiative, God's work for his people. And we think, as Paul talks about it in Romans eight, uh, Romans 5, God's initiative for us, right? You just can't help but think of the awesome initiative God's had toward us. God showed his love for us, Paul says there, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We were idolaters, haters of the true God, dedicated to self-worship and not God-worship. We were under the oppression of Satan. And right then and there, in our condition, no context, no crying out, nothing, Christ died for us. All of God's plan, all of God's doing. Not because he saw anything in us. Not one single thing that would earn or win his affection. No reason in us except his mercy for us. And you can include in that, while we were yet sinners, the angel Gabriel went to a virgin in the city of Nazareth and announced that she would bear a son whose name would be Jesus, who would be the Son of the Most High, whose kingdom would never end. That was wonderful for her to hear, of course, but the real significance is what it meant for all of us as the angels announced it to the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So God had all of you in mind when the angel came to announce to to Mary that there is a Savior. For these people who are idolaters, to these people who hate me, to these people who aren't even crying out to me, who've got their backs permanently turned against me, I'm announcing a Savior for them. And while you and I were still in our sins, dead in our sins, so Paul calls it, dead in that We were hopelessly given to sin. There's no turning us from embracing sin and no no doing for us to embrace God. We were following this world, following Satan himself, engulfed in evil passions, Paul says there in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. He initiated into a dark, rebellious heart, his love to draws to himself. You've got to always remember this, brother and sister, that he found you in at the point of hating him. That's where he found you. He acted on your behalf when you were against him. He sent Jesus, he 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 caused Jesus to be conceived When you and I were against him, God thought of this relationship with him, not you and I. He acted for us when our backs were turned and we would never have turned around. He came to us. We didn't come to him. He wanted us. We didn't want him. He began to draw us to himself when he was the last thing on our mind. That's what being dead and being made alive means. And so I want to encourage you that if that's the way he began, it's the way he continues. He's always initiating in your life. Always. He's moving forward. Not because you were always faithful. Not because you always get it right. And in spite of the many failures that you have had and will have, he continues to initiate into your life. Because he loves you with an infinite, unfailing love, an everlasting love, he says. How can he rejoice? How can it be his joy to do us good, us sinners? But it is. What he says in the new covenant, I will rejoice over you to do you good. Rejoice over who to do them good? I will rejoice over these people that utterly adulterated themselves With their idols, and I will rejoice over them to do them good. So he's always coming after you. He's always speaking hope into your despair. He's always giving his son for you in your situation feed upon him, to rest on him, to know the good, great things he has accomplished for you and is accomplishing for you, will do for you. He is always putting those, that accomplishment into your circumstance, his promise into your desperation. Always initiating. Which leads us then from our first point, God's initiative, to the second point, which is God's work. God's work here. Now, I have to just give the briefest account of leading up to the statement, "Why do you ask my name but the the Manoah's wife receives this uh, announcement we're going to talk some about the Nazarite vow uh, next week. We just didn't have time to get to it this week, but a little bit as we go on to chapter fourteen next week uh, it, it it basically comes from number 16 where you take a man or a woman can take a voluntary vow to give themselves to God for a period of time. And what's amazing about this one is that it's imposed from conception, even to involve his mother, to his death, um, and it's permanent over the whole of his life. But the, the word Nazirite or Nazir means separated. So this just is pointing to the fact that he's separated unto God, separated to belong to God in this special way. So God is saying, you're going to have this child, and he's going to belong to me from the beginning. So she goes to announce this to Manoah. And most commentators think that Manoah, uh, yes, he was eager to talk to the man of God, but maybe felt a little bit out of it, you know, like he appeared to my wife, but... I want him to appear to me too. You know, kind of that attitude. And so he wants him to come again and probably hopefully, hoping that this time he'll appear to the man of the house, you know, the leader of, of things. But again, he appears to the woman by herself. Seems to be on purpose because he could have appeared together, you know. But so she runs and gets her husband. So he has to kind of follow his wife back. And, and then he tries to get some control of the issue I saying, well, what can I do? How can I bring this under my, you know, control a little bit so I know what to do about it? And he says, there's nothing you can do about it. She's just got to keep the Nazarite vow. So this, he, he seems to be left out all the way to the end even where he seems a little bit dense to say, we're going to die. You know, basically she's saying, okay, let's get this straight. We're supposed. We're going to have this baby. He's going to save Israel. But you think that we're going to die? You know, that's kind of her, uh, what she's bringing out at the end. There is that. What you think, my man, Manoah? Uh, no, that's not going to happen. So she seemed to have better insight into what's happened, a calmer rest in in God's work here than Manoah. But it all leads to this point, and, and certainly legitimate that he was wanting to prepare this meal for uh, the angel, not knowing who he was, and the angel uh, likely is saying that you, because you don't know who I am, it wouldn't be proper for us to have a meal, and probably also uh, there's no shalom between me and Israel, and I can't enter into that work of peace or that uh, act of peace of, of this meal with you, but let's begin with the burnt offering. That's where we can start, right? That seems to be the feel of this. And then, of course, the amazing event when he offers the uh, the goat and lights the fire and it begins to go up that suddenly this man that's there just comes into the fire and just lifts up and, uh, and evacuates in this glorious, stunning way. And it's interesting that he says, Why do you ask my name? It's wonderful. And then it says... Uh, that in verse 19, the, to the one who works wonders, who works wonderfully, and Manoah and his wife were watching, and it repeats, they were watching. They saw this wonderful event of his being caught up, which was a sign, a signal to them of the reality of the wonderful thing that he's doing for them and giving them this child that this is the representative in very, the very presence of God as they recognize. They were dealing with God himself and the angel of the Lord. And it is none other than God that's acting on their behalf. And we know in the bigger story that's acting on behalf of Israel itself, that's saving Israel. And I want to talk just a little bit about this word, uh, wonderful, uh, and bring some application into our lives By it. This is the word used to describe God's work in the Exodus again and again. Psalm 77, 78, 88 uh, all describe the wonderful work, wonderful deeds of God in the Exodus. So it points to his salvation, it points to his judgment that he does these uh, amazing acts in history. He is this, therefore, this amazing. God who does wonderful things for his people, incomprehensible things for his people. It has that note about it too. Things beyond uh, what we can imagine. That's the kind of wonderful things that are pointed to here. So this has some overtones of the Exodus. The wonderful God who acted for Israel, that's who I am. That's what I do. That's how you know me. Uh, And will know me by the wonders that I perform. And so for us, we need to define God in that way for ourselves. You see, he's taking, uh, he's using this word that's descriptive of God's great acts of salvation for God's people. And he says, in a sense, this isn't just what I do. This is who I am for you. This is always what I am for you. I'll never be anything but this for you. I am wonderful. This is what he does for you every day of your life. And no matter how grievous, no matter how tragic, no matter how devastating, no matter how overwhelming a particular event or series of events may be to you and seem to be against you, it always lies in the hand of God so that he is acting wonderfully on your behalf. Always. Even things that will finally be removed in the new heavens and the new earth. Death and sickness and human conflict. Still in the hands of God. These must render good to his people. He is the one who does wonderful things for us. And as great as the exodus was, as great as his deliverance from Egypt... It was just a little foretaste, a little tiny picture of what he's going to do in Christ Jesus, right? So we see in a way they couldn't see at that point how wonderful this God is that he would come and sacrifice himself for us. That is how wonderful he is. And so we read in Isaiah for us. A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. What's first in line is this word wonderful, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of Saviot, the, the Lord who reigns over uh, innumerable angelic battalions, this to describe His greatness, he, he and His zeal will do this to give us this child who is wonderful, who will do wonderful things. And so God has acted in Christ. He always acts in Christ in keeping with his purpose to bless you in Christ, he never ever does anything but that in whatever befalls you, whatever you encounter, good or bad. And see, our version of, of Manoah's question in the midst of difficulty, we kind of are presented with this question. We, it, maybe we don't say it in so many words, but it's like, well, who are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What is going on? You know, we just, what is happening here? I, I don't get this. I don't get why you allow this to happen. At this time, this, no. How could you do this? Those kinds of things, right? And I think we need to hear his, his, his response here. Why, why do you ask what my name is? It's It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's it's always wonderful. I wouldn't be anything else but that to you. I've given my son for you. I, I, I've sacrificed myself for you in the person of Christ. That's who I am. And the fact that things are incomprehensible is part of the reason they're so wonderful he's doing his thing. We don't get it. We can't understand it. The greatness of it. Everything he is weaving together behind the scenes in his great power. But it all, Paul says, works together for your good. Always for your good. And it's not just... And some, this is kind of where I get to a lot of times. Well, I hope God will eke out a little something good out of this somehow. You know, probably a few ounces, you know, a modicum of good, something, you know, a little good. I know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but some, because he promised, you know. That's quite different than thinking, he is working wonderful, incomprehensible good for me. Because that's what he did in Christ, and everything is now defined by that. That's what he is to me, what he is to me in Christ. He will be nothing else but that to me. We need to put these two things together, you see. God's initiative and God's wonderful work. Hey, now that's pretty cool, huh? He is initiating. He is bringing about this wonderful thing. And so Barry Webb, after looking at the birth, which this looks like an account just of the appearance, but the whole point is verse 24, and it's kind of understated, Samson was born, right? This is the whole goal of the initial announcement, Samson was born. And Barry Webb says, this does not belong to the category of ordinary things. This too is a wonder, It is a complete reversal of the seemingly irreversible situation with which the chapter opened. The barren woman gives birth as Yahweh's messenger said she would. God has brought life out of the deadness of her womb. It demonstrates that the issues of life and death are in his hands and that therefore no situation is hopeless, including Israel's. And in the birth of this baby to this woman, the change that Israel so desperately needs has already started to happen. And So for you and me, no situation is hopeless because God is bringing life where there is death. In your own character, God will bring life where there is death. God will bring something out of nothing. God will bring fruit where there is no fruit in the midst of your own struggles with sin. And to show his initiative, Paul can say in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand. He's been planning from all eternity what good you're going to do. What love is going to issue from your life? Whose lives are going to be greatly affected by you because of your love? That's how God has initiated into your life. taking you in your darkness and said, this is going to be a workmanship of my hands. And I'm going to create in this person a new character that will pour forth love. As he says in Titus 2.14, he died so that we would be zealous for good deeds. Zealous for love. Zealous for love. The zeal of the Lord pursues this accomplishment in your life, in my life, so that He is on the move in us. He's doing wonderful works and mighty deeds in our lives. And among us as a people, his temple where his glory is displayed. So that Paul can say in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Sounds like mighty deeds there. Sounds like incomprehensible deeds, right? Beyond what you can even imagine or think. That's who he is to us. That's what he is to us. In fact, earlier, Paul links this greatest act of his power in the history of the world, the resurrection of Christ, in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He says, I pray that you will know that power, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the power that he exhibited when he raised Christ from the dead. I pray that you will understand that that power is pointed toward you now, is directed toward your good. For the accomplishment of God's good purposes in your life. I pray that you will know that. So let us believe it. He's in, on the move in our life. He's doing marvelous works. He's doing multiple marvelous works in you from now until you breathe your last. May He give us faith and hope and great expectation in this. And I want to say, if you don't know Christ, we sang this marvelous hymn, O oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Listen to this one. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avail for me. We, our conviction, if you don't know Christ, here's our conviction. He's already made the foulest clean. That's me. But then all these other people would say, no, no, it's me. You know, and then, no, no, I'm the foulest. I'm the foulest that he made clean. You can't be too foul. We already would prove that, okay? We're among the foulest. You don't think so, but yeah, we are. But God has made us clean. And sin reigned in our lives. Every one of us, sin reigned, dominated our lives before we met Christ. It doesn't matter how sin reigns in your life. It doesn't matter how foul you've become. Join the club. Join the club in admitting these things and coming to this mighty Savior who will bring about the most awesome changes in your life, will cause you to love God where you didn't think you could love God, to trust Him and delight in Him, and to carve out a new path for you in which you more and more Find the joy of giving yourself away to others. And you end up with him in the new heavens and the new earth, the new body reigning forever. But the real point is to be restored to the relationship of this God who has made you, who's acted in such a powerful way in his son to come to you, to deliver you, to have you for himself. Don't turn him away. Don't turn him away. Ask Him to lay hold of you, to turn your heart to Him. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we praise Your name for Your initiative in our life, Your work in our life, the wonderful things You have done and will do for us, and that nothing will ever stand in the way, and everything must contribute to this wonderful work. Thank You, Lord. You rejoice over us to do us good, and you will do us good for the whole of our lives. Bless us for Jesus' sake.
0: the scene clouded with pain
1: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for Worship Service times. Directions to the church and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: My fears away Won't you chase My fears away